Welcome to the Waterways World Podcast, brought to you in association with ABC Leisure Group, operators of hire fleets and marinas around the UK. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World Podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine. And in this episode, we talk to writer and liverboard boater, Tony Jones. Tony has lived afloat for over 16 years, and he has written two practical guides to boating, the Liverboard Guide and the Narrowboat Guide, both published by Bloomsbury. He is also a regular contributor to Waterways World magazine. Among other things, we discuss Tony's unconventional journey to boating life, his writing career, and how his boat was especially adapted to accommodate partner Vicky when she joined him on the water. So, let's take a listen. So, Tony, when did the canals come into your life? Have they always been there? Kind of. Um... They were there from the very beginning um, because I was brought up next to the canals. But I have to admit, there was a bit of a hiatus between my childhood and uh, when I actually got my boat. Um, but I was brought up next to the canals in the Black Country. I was uh, brought up in Wensbury, which is near West Bromwich, Warsaw, Wolverhampton kind of way. And uh, the canal ran directly along the back of our house. And of course, my mother forbid me from going down the canal because it was super dangerous and all that. So, of course, that was the first place we'd head when we when we went out to play. Um, and I also spent a lot of time running along the canal. I got into long distance running when I was um, a teenager. I used to run marathons and half marathons. So the canal was pretty much my training track for all those years. Um, but after I left home, the canals kind of disappeared, um, or at least I didn't have much to do with them until I actually got my boat. Were there many boats on the waterways during your early explorations? Um very few. We used to see the odd boats um, come along the canal when we were kids. And um, actually, I, I should make a bit of a, a, a confession. What I intend to do with my boat eventually is take it back along those same canals that uh, near where I grew up so that the kids who live on the housing estate can stand on the, on the bridge and pee on my boat, which is what we used to do to the oh, no. canal boats that used to pass by when I was a kid. I think it's only fair to, re- you know, to return the favour, don't you? Yeah, I think so. Well, I don't know, actually. I don't think I should be approving that. <laughs> I shall be entirely forgiving of any kid that decides they want to do that because, uh, yeah, I was, can't say I was a very well-behaved child down the canals. So presumably when you moved away from home, that's when the, the canals sort of disappeared from your life for a while. Yeah, I, I ended up being pretty itinerant, if I'm honest. Um, you know, and the cows didn't feature at all. Um, I, I left home and travelled a lot and um, had lots of different jobs. And the, the canals weren't really something I'd, I'd considered. They were, you know, like, like they are to a lot of people, or at least previously they were. They, they didn't really feature in your day-to-day life. So, yeah, they, they disappeared until I actually bought my boat. And what inspired you to buy a boat? Oh, well, that, that, that kind of comes back to me being um, itinerant and travelling a lot and never really settling down. Um, I'd, I worked it out that I'd lived in um, a different house. Since I left home, I'd lived in a different house um, approximately, on average, every eight months. Wow. And so settling down wasn't really my kind of thing. And um, my, life, my lifestyle was so um, unreliable 
shall we say. Um, that I, I realised that maintaining a mortgage was uh, never going to be something that I could guarantee. Some some months, years I'd have money, some months, years I wouldn't. Mm. And so, um, so, you know, buying a house was never really an option for me. But anyway, part of my working life, I ended up um, going over to Lanzarote in the Canaries to help open a zoo, believe it or not. Right. And um, I lived on site there for about a year. Right. And uh, got paid a decent amount of money and never had to spend any money because I lived on site and uh, all the living accommodation and the food in the restaurant was free. So I came back to the UK after about a year um, with a load of money in my pocket. And I was thinking, oh, man, maybe I ought to grow up a bit and join the real world and uh, get you know, get a bit responsible. And I thought, maybe I should buy a house. Mm. And this big shudder came down my spine. I was like, no, I can't do that. That's not, that's not going to work. That's not going to happen. So I started thinking about other things I could do. And um, a few years ago, I spoke with some friends who were thinking about buying a narrowboat. And that idea came into my head. So um, I started doing a bit of research, yeah. and it turned out that one of the websites that I used to use a lot back in the days when internet forums were still a thing, yeah. um, one of the guys on the website um, had a narrowboat, a guy called Mike, the boiler man. Uh, you might probably see him on some of the canal forums. And uh, he offered to help babysit me through buying a narrowboat, and that's really where it all started. I just thought that living on a narrowboat was a really kooky, interesting thing to do. And it stopped me having to buy a house. And, you know, if I bought it outright, then my itinerant lifestyle wouldn't be so you know, uh, vulnerable. At least I'd have somewhere to live always. And so that's why I bought my boat. And how did you go about the boat buying process? Did you spend time afloat? No, I'd never been on a boat in my life. Um, but I, I was lucky enough to have Mike as a bit of a mentor. Yeah. And, um, so Mike had a couple of narrowboats at the time and he offered to babysit me through the process. So we spent a long time looking at um, different narrowboats on, online and we went to visit a few. And eventually it came down to two options. We got two kind of contenders. And I remember one of them was about 18 grand at the time and one of them, this one, was um, 25 grand. And I said, right, I'll buy the 18 grand one. And Mike was like, no, but buy the 25 grand one. And I was like, yeah, but what's the difference? I can't see the difference. You know, I could, why would I spend that extra money on a on a boat when I could have that one, which is pretty much the same to my view. He's like, that's because you don't know what you're doing. He says, that's because you don't know what you're looking at. He's like, look, you've asked for my advice. Here's my advice. Buy that 25 grand boat and then come back to me in five years time when you know what you're talking about and uh, and thank me. <laughs> and yeah, I've had to go and thank Mike a few times because this boat is pretty awesome and has served me well. And I can see now why some of the boats that I would have been looking at previously might not have been as suitable. Right. You know, there's a big difference between a liverboard boat and a and a leisure boat. And I'm pretty sure Mike um, kind of steered me in the right direction. What would you identify as the features that make a boat particularly well suited to residential use? There's a few things to look for. And it wasn't until later that I was looking back in retrospect that I was thankful for. Um, the the first one was it was a really nice shell by a by a decent builder. It's uh, built by Stoke Boats at um, Langport Wharf, and if I look at the shape of this boat now, um, it is a really nice looking boat. I mean, when I got it, it was a rusty shed, and um, you know me heavily tattooed rusty old boat you know i used to get a few funny looks and noses turned up at me when when i was originally on the canals 
but then when I had the boat painted, all that changed and everybody was like, oh, splendid boat, sir. Very good choice. Very nice boat. Look, lovely looking shell. And, um, you know, that, that's the first thing about this boat that, that I really appreciate. Then it became clear that there were plenty of features about the boat that were suitable for me and specifically as a liverboard. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of trads because it gives you more lockable internal space, which for me is a premium. Um, you know, you, some people like semi-trads, some people like cruisers and, you know, having a pram hood on the back so that you can change out of muddy boots and wipe the wet dog down are all great for, you know, other people like that kind of thing. Me, mm. I like to lock things up so that they don't get nicked out of my, you know, from under my cratch hood or from under my um, under my stern hood. Mm. So, you know, being a trad is really good. Um, what else? The, the water tank being right in the front nose of the boat so that I can easily change all the gas bottles in the gas lockers behind them. That's, that's, that was another feature that was pretty awesome about this. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of stuff. I could go on about dinettes and, um, you know, calorifiers and things like that, which are probably more suited to leisure boating than they are to um, to live in a board. But, you know, it's all horses for courses, really. Of course. Did you intend to be a continuous cruiser? Um, I can't honestly call myself a continuous cruiser. Um, I occasionally am a continuous cruiser, but I'm also a continuous moor. I quite often get a, uh, a mooring spot in a marina or more usually actually a, a boatyard. Right. Um, it just depends on which way the wind blows. You know, when the sun's shining and there's uh, the opportunity to cruise around, then I do that. Um but quite often there's been reasons to stay in one specific place, um, usually in the early days because my engine didn't work. Mm. But, um, yeah, there's been plenty of times when I've just hunkered down in um, in, in marinas and, and, and boatyards, and that's been great too. But I have to say I really do enjoy the continuous side of it more than more than being moored up. You know, there's, there's people who own boats and then there's boaters. And, you know, I, I prefer the boat inside of it, if I'm honest. So what were your early experiences afloat like? Um, not good, not good. Um, essentially, I, um, I handed 25 grand over to the guy who sold the boat and I set off with the keys in my hand, having never really been on a boat before. And, you know, that's, that's the worst thing to do. We all know that's the worst thing to do. And uh, problems will occur, and indeed they did. But I think I was lucky. Um, e- even on the first day of owning the boat, um, I kind of knew how locks worked. I understood the kind of you know theory of it, and I wasn't particularly daunted by it. You know, people do this kind of thing all the time. Surely I'll be able to do it. And so I set off on the boat out of the marina in in um, Northampton and approached the lock. And as I approached the lock, I just lost it. Just became increasingly frightened of doing this lock. And uh, luckily, up, up behind me came this guy on a boat. It was a kind of old working boat. I think it was. A, he said it was a museum piece, and he was just moving it from one place to another. And I said, look, mate, I'm fresh out of the box here, green as green can be. I have no idea what I'm doing. And he said, okay, that's no problem. I'll babysit you through this lock. So he babysat me through the lock, and it was great. And um, I must have frightened him enough to realize that I was totally incompetent. And he said, how far are you going? I said, I'm going down onto the River Way. And he was like, what, on the on the Thames? And I was like, yeah, not realising what, what a ridiculous statement that was. 
Ah. And he said, look, you know, I'm going, I'm traveling every day for the next few days. He says, you come with me and, um, and I'll teach you what I can as we go along. He said, but it's an early start. So um, seven o'clock every morning, the beer, knock, knock, knock on the boat. <laughs> and it's like, right, get up, we're going. So I'd have to jump onto the back of the boat. And um, for like maybe five days, um, we cruised from first light until, until last light. This was in the, uh, November, I think it was. And I made all the cock-ups you could possibly make in that time. But in that time, I did more cruising in that um, in those five days than, than most people do in a year. <laughs> yeah. And every evening, he'd tell me what I'd done wrong. And every evening, he'd give me some advice. And even when we were traveling along, he'd, there was no, no opportunity to cook or anything. So he'd slow up and give me a sandwich that he'd made in his boatman's Crazy. cabin. And then, he'd, uh, and he'd go off in front. And then he'd slow up and give me a cup of tea you know, that he'd made in his boatman's cabin and then speed up and go off. But, yeah, it was an intensive training It sounds like a waterways boot camp, doesn't it? It was awesome, I have to say. And I did make all the cock-ups you can make. Yeah. And um, he, he was awesome. And But that, I think, has been my overriding experience of my life on the canals. And certainly in the early days, um, when I knew nothing and I was frequently at the behest of other boaters to help me to sort out the problems that I'd either created or come come upon, you know, there's. I don't know if um, I don't know if there's time to tell you about the uh, the bloke I met in the first few days uh, when my water tank when my water didn't work, and um, I'd filled up my water tank and um, all my taps were working fine, but this one tap in the galley was still not giving out any water. So I pulled in to this near this set of moorings where there was this guy working on his boat i said look mate i've got a problem here i've got no water in my galley tap and he says oh right yeah i think i know what the problem is he says you've probably got two water tanks and i said well why would you have two water tanks Mm. and he said have you looked inside your water tank and i said yeah he says is it full of spiders and rust and cobwebs i said yeah he said well somebody's looked in that tank and gone i'm not drinking that and has installed another water tank under your bow deck full of, you know, clean, potable water just for that galley tap. Mm. And we looked under the bow deck, and there it was, this plastic tank. So um, put a hose in the new water tank, and we're filling it up, and we're talking, and we're chatting away like you do. And three-quarters of an hour later, the water's still filling. I'm like, blimey, that must be a massive tank. And then as I stepped into the back of my boat, my foot went splosh in six inches of water. And I squealed like a girl, and uh, this guy put his head around my boat, and he said the most beautiful words and manners ever said to me, which is, "Don't worry, son, your boat's not sinking. Just turn tap off." <laughs> so, uh, so, I turn, so I turn the tap off, and uh, it turns out this second water tank was split, and um, it, it was essentially just filling up my boat instead of filling up the water tank. Yeah, right. So this guy spent his whole weekend. Um, replumbing, bailing me out literally, and replumbing my tank yeah. and replumbing my waterworks. And I tried for, for the whole of the weekend, tried to take him and his wife out for a meal, but he wouldn't have it. You know, I tried to buy the beers in the pub later and he wouldn't have it. And he said, Look, you know, this is my yard. And while you're in my yard, I buy the beers. He said, But when I come to visit you, and I will, um, remember that I drink a lot. <laughs> and he did. And, um, but he told me a story as well. He said that there's an old boating tradition that you should never eat your last slice of bread. You should always throw it off the back of your boat um, to feed the ducks with. He says, and nice. then when you're in the shit and you've got no money and you need some help and you've got no food, there's always a big fat duck at the back of your boat. He says, 
that's all I'm that's doing it. now. I'm throwing bread off the back of my boat because one day I know I'm going to need the help. He says, and I said, if you're going to live aboard, he says, I suggest you do the same. And it's kind of the principle that I've um, adopted on the boat. Um, people have helped me so much. Now I've been aboard for a long time. I don't know everything, you know. Um, my partner, Vicky, looks after the boat. So if it's anything engine or engineering-wise, you know, you're better off speaking to Vicky than me. But both of us are in, a, in of, the, of the principle that if we can help, that's definitely what we do because, God, I, I owe a few favours. I really do. Mm. Do you think that's possibly why you write now about the waterways and offer advice on living afloat? Kind of. Um, being on the boat helped me to launch my writing career. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I can explain why, but, you know, that my writing career has always been explaining things to people, explaining things in a way that people can easily access easily understand and will find enriching and that's that's i don't write fiction i don't write novels but you know if you need something explaining that that's what i can do and i think i've just monetized that ability to explain things um you know i, I write for lots of different magazines there's a really good one called waterways world i write for occasionally <laughs> um but you know it's it's all non-fiction stuff you know you're explaining how to do things so Yes, I like explaining things, and yes, I feel like I've got um, you know a, a debt to pay, so I'm, I'm happy to do that. But really, I just need to earn a living. If yeah. um, if you're asking me for my primary reason why I'm a writer, it's to earn a living. Well, when, when did that begin then, or how did that begin? The, the writing element. Have you always? Written? Oh well, um, can't, well, not really, but uh, or at least I've not written well for <laughs> until relatively recently. But when I was um, younger, I used to work a lot with reptiles. And uh, I used to work at Europe's largest reptile house, Europe's largest breeding facility, and it was in Warsaw. And um, we were working with some pretty serious, hardcore animals. And the guys who ran reptile magazines knew that I was working with these animals. So they're like, hey, Tony, can you write me an article about that tree boa? Or can you write me an article about that viper? And I was like, what? Yeah, you're going to give me 100 quid for writing an article about an animal I work with? Yeah, cool. So I started writing articles about, um, about reptiles. Mm. And then uh, a bit later on, I, got, I started working in the um, in health clubs in fitness, and the guys who ran the fitness magazines found out that I used to write for reptile magazines. So I thought, like, right, can you write us some articles about um, about fitness principles? And I was like, yeah, okay. And this was all kind of a side hustle at the time. Mm. Um, but then I had a motorbike accident, which wiped me out pretty oh, wow. badly. And I realized that a career in fitness wasn't going to be possible anymore. So I had to kind of recalibrate what I was going to do for a living. Okay. So uh, while I was in hospital, I was like, right, so I'll be a writer then. I'll be a journalist, Yeah, which was a bit flippant at the time. So I started, um, started writing for a living. Didn't go well in the early days, I have to admit. Um, I think a lot of writers will, uh, will agree that it's not easy being a writer and I remember doing my accounts with a friend one year and she said, right, what did you earn in April? I was like, 300 quid. What did you earn in May? 200 quid. What did you earn in June? Nothing. What did you earn in July? Nothing. And she said, how are you still alive? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, eventually you, you build up your competence. Eventually you build up your clients and you build up your, uh, your, your ability. Mm. And, uh, yeah, don't, we don't do too badly now, I have to say. And you've written two books on boating life, both published by Bloomsbury. That's right. The Liverboard Guide, I think that was 2016, and then the Narrowboat Guide, 
was a, a bit later. Yes. The Liverboard Guide came about because I read another book called, um, what was it, Voyaging on a Small Income by uh, Annie Hill. And if you're going to go and look for that book, don't buy that book unless you're absolutely prepared to sell everything you own and move aboard a boat because that's what it makes you want to do right um but i read this book and it was fun it's fantastic it's about um it's about a couple who live on uh, boats at sea and they traveled the world for, i think at the time they were spending about four grand a year traveling the world on their boat and living frugally and while i was reading it i was thinking god that's pretty much what i do on the inland waterways mm. and i thought well you know, if I can write a book about the same subject, uh, but for the inland waterways, that's surely more accessible and more. There's more people interested in doing that than than people living at sea. So I got in touch with Bloomsbury and I said, "Hey, I, re- I read your book, Voyaging on a Small Income, and I write magazine articles for a living, and um, I've got this idea for a book." And they said, "Great, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Write us a book proposal." Um, they said, do you know how to write a book proposal? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I know how to do that. And of course, I had no idea. So um, so I ended up buying this book called How to Write a Book Proposal. And I followed what it says on page one. And I followed what it said on page two and carried on through. And I wrote this book proposal. And I sent it off to the to the publisher. And they said, did you write this book proposal? I said, yeah. They said, this is one of the most comprehensive, one of the best book proposals we've ever, ever received. Here's, here's some money for you to go and write this book. Oh, wow. So I, so I started writing. Yeah. And the, the whole idea behind the book, the, the principle that I held at the core, was that you could read it on the toilet. It was broken up into small bite-sized chunks that were easy to read and engage in, and you didn't have to plough through cliff faces of text. And, yeah. you know, most of the books I'd read on the subject previously looked like they'd been written by an old man with a beard in a shed. And they're very useful to people who are, you know, nerdy, fully invested in the canals and want all the details about widgets and gadgets and everything else. But to the beginner, they're a really daunting prospect. So that book was written with beginners in mind so that you could just pick it up, read a chunk and go, oh, wow, now I know about that. Oh, what does it tell me about toilets? Here's a here's two pages about toilets. Yeah. Great. Now I know about toilets. What does it say about water heaters? Bang. There's that information. So that's how that really came about. And I remember, too, you had box outs with boaters as well. Yes. Which I think that gave was... people a sense of uh, the, the characters and the community on the cutters. Well, certainly that was an important principle because, of course, books and writing is all very well and good, but really what everybody wants is a story. And so telling stories had to be part of it. If you just go through and you talk about facts Facts are all very well and good, but it's stories that hold the reader's uh, attention. But also, the reason we had lots of different profiles in there was because it would be ridiculous for me to just write about my own profile, my own experience. This is how I do it, and that's how you do it. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Mm. It doesn't work like that. There's a lot of different ways to do it, and so the only way to get those stories across was to get um, kind of snippets and, and um, information from other, other boaters who do things differently and their reasons why they do it. And if you're anything like these people, you might want to consider doing it this way. Mm. Because, you know, what, you know, one size does not fit all with boating. I guess toilets are a primary example of that, aren't they? Oh, start me on toilets. <laughs> oh, don't. There we go. What time is it? It's half ten and we're on toilets. Yeah. How long have we got? <laughs> How long have we got? Um, but... Uh, in fairness, you've got a composting toilet, haven't you? You've been quite a proponent. Yeah, that's been fantastic. You had that fitted, what was it, a couple of years ago? 
about three or four years ago yeah. now, when we had the boat stretched to fit to fit Vicky aboard, um, we decided that a composting toilet was the way to go. And I'm I'm sorry, I'm just going to get really evangelical about it now. You've you've, yeah. you've lit a spark. <laughs> I didn't. I I don't thought about the idea of composting toilets before, and and I had to actually eat my words in the second edition of the Liverboard Guide because in the first edition I said, you know, toilets. Some people have composting toilets, but I can't really see it catching on. And that was what it said in the, right. in the first edition. Okay. In the second edition, I had to say, oh, yeah, I've got a composting toilet. I know I said I didn't think they'd catch on, but I've got one now. And I, I didn't, I'd, I'd thought about the idea, but I'd been moored in um, just outside Skipton in Kildwick, which if you know anything about composting toilets, you might recognise the name because Kildwick is a brand of composting toilets. And I was moored on the same moorings as the couple who uh, who founded Kildwick Toilets, and they've got composting toilets. So I was like, okay, come on, they convince me. And I spent quite a bit of time talking to them about composting toilets, and I thought, wow, that's ace, you know. But I didn't think I'd get the idea past Vicky at all. Vic, you know, you probably realise I'm a little bit feral, and um, Vicky's you know, uh, quite a degree more domesticated than I am, and I, I didn't think I'd get the idea of this composting toilet past Vicky. Right. But actually, the idea to get one was Vicky's idea, but our reasonings were very different. Um, my reasonings were... Um, cost, convenience, and uh, how agreeable the process was, which I can expand upon. Vicky's reasons for wanting a composting toilet were, were entirely environmental. So between us, we've got this environmentally friendly toilet that uh, doesn't rely on any of the expensive and ecologically unfriendly sewage systems. It means that it doesn't matter where we are on the network, we can deal with our toilet um, it means that we don't have to pay for a pump out, which is what we had before. And having used cassettes and having used a pump out on my toilet for you know many years, I can tell you that the composting toilet is by far the most agreeable to deal with. Um, I refuse to empty a cassette, and even the even the pump outs, um, you know, to be honest, once it's out of me, I don't want to see it again, really. Yeah, <clears throat> but yeah. composting toilets have been a bit of a revelation. You'd think that after all the years of working with animals in zoos, I'd be a little less squeamish. But, um, yeah, composting toilets, it's the future. <laughs> and how are you disposing of the waste, the human? Oh, you, you would ask that, wouldn't you? Yeah. It's got to be <laughs> well, that's, that's turned into a bit of boner, a boner contention. That's why I ask, <clears throat> yeah. um, well, back in 2017, CRT got an inquiry from a couple of boaters saying, we've got a composting toilet, we need to get rid of our uh, human manure. Um, is it okay if we just drop it in your bins? And, and CRT were like, yeah, go on then, just drop it in the bins, that's no problem, you know, a couple of people, no big worry. Fast forward a few years and we've got many, many, many more people with composting toilets. Mm. And I won't go into all the details about waste management and CRT's um responsibility to provide facilities which is you know not not really something they have to do but essentially what it meant was the amount of people putting human manure in bins was uh, more than their um, waste management contract would allow so recently crt decided that you can no longer throw human manure in their bins we've got a we've got a, a stay of execution until December, but after December, no more throwing human urine bins. Um, when we first got the composting toilet, we had places where we could compost on land. But when we started moving around, that was not a, an option anymore. 
And so Vicky being Vicky did some research and she found about, out about these um, hot composting bins and we bought one and we've got it in the front of our uh, boat now under the cratch and um, it basically composts human manure in three months. And thankfully, the the rate at which we fill the composting, uh, the, the hot bin, is uh, about the same as the rate at which we empty out uh, pathogen-free, fully composted um, human manure yeah. that no longer, lo- well, within the first couple of weeks, it no longer looks like human manure. Um, but you give it three months at 60, 70 degrees and um, pathogen, it's pathogen-free essentially and uh, much easier to dispose of. So it's been a... It's been a steep old learning curve. Yes. And uh, there's still you know, a lot of room for learning, but a lot of people have got composting loos now, so something's going to have to be done. Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest waterway news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of Waterways Life, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com, where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, our interactive Ask an Expert Advice section, and our boat search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com. You mentioned getting the boat stretched to allow Vicky to live aboard. When did she come into your life? Uh, nearly eight years ago. And that, that, in, that indeed it's in itself is a, is a bit of a... A talking point because I realised that my boating lifestyle basically excluded the ability to have a relationship. So, so I was never going to live in a house that just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, um, and I didn't have enough room to move somebody aboard because I lived on a fifty-foot boat, and I wanted to move around a lot. And most people are kind of set in one particular place. So basically, I'd resign myself to a, a life of singledom. Right. Um, but then Vicky came along and I was like, oh, damn, I'm going to have to do something about this now. <laughs> so, um, so you know, the idea of living in the house was completely out. So we realised we needed to move Vicky onto a boat. So she was she was living in a, a conventional property? Yeah, she lived in a big old, um, big old house in Kendall with loads of sparkly things and, um, you know, that simply weren't going to move onto the boat. Right. Oh, we had some times getting getting her possessions down to boat living mm-hmm. um but it got done and um but, but between then and then and now we had to work out how we were both going to live aboard a boat and the first idea was that we'd sell this boat and oh no sorry the first idea we were going to get a butty that's right um we were going to get a butty to use as an office because of course i I write and Vicky's a graphic designer, which are great, both great professions to do remotely living mm. aboard. But there wasn't enough, <clears throat> wasn't enough office space aboard. So I was like, okay, if we can have an extra 20 foot of butty boat, we can have a floating office. And we went as far as Vicky actually designing a 3D butty and we very nearly pulled the trigger on it, but we, um, 
we pulled out of that because the idea of having to move two boats through small locks so you'd have to moor up, pull the boat from behind, pull it aside, go into the lock, do the lock while the boats are side by side, and then come out the other end, put the boat back, put the booty back behind you to tow it to the next lock a mile away and do it all over again. I was like, that's that's not a convenient thing to do, or at least not convenient for us. And how would it work at narrow locks? Well, narrow locks are usually 70 foot, so you can leave the leave the booty behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you could, my boat was 50 foot plus a 20 foot uh, office booty. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we could just left it behind, so that wouldn't have been so much of a problem. It was, you know, canals like the Leeds and Liverpool, where I spent a lot of time, where we'd end up doing that in front, by the side, in front, by the side, and there was no joy in that. No. So that so that booty idea got trashed. So um, the next idea was for us to buy uh, a bigger boat. So I realised that 57 foot, you know, we got a 50 footer and 57 foot wasn't going to be nearly enough extra space. So I realised the next size up is more is pretty much 62 foot if you want to get into the you know, next size locks. So I wasn't happy about being um, restricted to not being able to do some of the network. But then when I researched how much of the network you can't do in a 62 footer, it's tiny. I think there's, is it the Huddersfield Broad and the, I can't remember, tiny, tiny proportion of the canals that you yeah. can't do. So I was like, right, is that is that as big as the problem is? I'm over it already. And um, it was like, right, we need a 62 footer then. So then we started looking for 62 foot boats so that we could fit us all on board and Vicky's shoes as well. And um we ended up traveling around the country looking for 62 foot boats with a very specific interior that we could convert into a, um, into an office. So, you know, we'd restricted our field of potential boats so much that the number of boats that were available were, were tiny. And more, more importantly, they were all over the country and we were going, we'd drive sort of three hours to go and see a boat and we'd end up, you know, 20 yards away from it look at it and go well well, that's that's no good whatsoever turn around and go home and we did that half a dozen times and I was like Christ by this time Vicky had um, sold her house and in readiness for moving aboard and she was living in um, a small apartment in um, in Lancaster because I'd taken my boat up onto the Lancaster canal so that we could be closer together and um, for all the time that Vicky was in the house she was paying like a grand and a half in rent and bills etc so for every month that we were looking for a boat vicky was paying a grand and a half so our money was dwindling Mm. um so we had to firstly sell my boat and we didn't know how long it was going to take to sell and didn't know how much money we were going to get for it then we had to find another boat which was suitable and we didn't know how much that was going to cost or how long it was going to take so for every month of uncertainty it was a grand and a half so in the end, we realized that the by having the boat stretched, we'd not only know how much it was going to cost, we'd know how long it was going to take. And that would put a cap on our kind of expenditure while we were looking. So we took the boat back to the people who built it at Stoke Boats. Um, they built my boat. Uh, oh, when was it? 80? I can't remember. The boat's just over 30 years old. Oh, so right. uh, they, they built my boat, you know. 28 years ago when I took it back to him and the guy who built it was still there Bob the boat builder <laughs> and uh, I was talking to him and I told him the name of my boat and he was like oh yeah I remember your boat it had one of these didn't it and we did it like this and we made it happen like this didn't we and he remembered the boat it was his wow. third boat that he'd ever built okay right and it was he ju- was just about to retire when we took our boat back and um he he did the stretch as well um it was a bit disconcerting to see him going at the middle of the boat with a 
with an angle grinder. Um, But yeah, over the course of about a year, um, the boat got stretched. No, it was less than that, maybe maybe eight months. The the boat was stretched, and um, I I defy you to find where where the stretch cut happened. You know, it's very difficult to see the the added bit in, but it's been wonderful. It has been absolutely wonderful. We've got. yeah, we've got a lovely um, office with two standing desks. I've got a utility area with a washing machine and um, another side hatch on the other side of the boat. So we've got two side hatches. Um, all Vicky's wardrobe space. We've got a bigger galley and a big uh, bathroom. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the boat was a bit of a man shed before, Mickey, before Vicky moved right. aboard. Um, and it's a, a much, much more domesticated now, particularly because Vicky has um, skills that I don't have. She knows one end of a spanner from the other, whereas I absolutely don't. Surely being on the boat, you're forced into acquiring practical skills, no? Yes, that's that's true. But my ability and also my um, kind of inclination to do things extended no further than emergency DIY and bodge ah, yes. jobs. I'm the same, Tony. So, yes, I, sh- I share that trait. Yeah. yeah. So what has Vicky done on the boat? Oh, everything. <laughs> everything. Everything. <laughs> yeah, like I say, it was a bit of a collection of bodge jobs and, um, and emergency fixes before Mickey, Vicky moved aboard. And that was, um, that was more or less all right with me. I was a bit feral, flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah. But Vicky's... Vicky's ability to fix stuff has been a godsend. We, I've now got the boat that I think we deserve and that, that, that we can be proud of. Um, we had the BMC engine refurbished by a friend of Vicky's. And um, so the engine room looks spotless and is no longer full of bilge oil and, um, and all the other muck that was in there. So you could eat your dinner off our engine bay, thanks to Vicky. Um, the solar and uh, and power system that we've got is all very well regulated and um, you know works a treat and Vicky knows exactly how to manage the manage the batteries. The place is wonderfully decorated and ed- anything that goes wrong, if Vicky doesn't know how to fix it, she she finds out how to fix it and does it. And what's been really nice is that when we've been in boatyards, the people in the boatyards quickly realize that i have absolutely no idea what i'm doing <laughs> and ignore speaking to me about boats and walk past me and speak to vicky right. and it's been um it's been great and uh yeah it's this is the first time that i've ever been confident enough to take the boat on a, on a tidal waterway and not be worried about it the boat is in the best shape it's ever been and that's because vicky stays on top of it right. you know little things go wrong and within a couple of days it's fixed and um, yeah, thank goodness for that yeah. because I don't know where I'd be now <laughs> if it, if it wasn't for Vicky's ability to to mop up my messes, <laughs> yeah. which I inevitably cause. It sounds like you found the perfect companion. Yeah, well, th- this has been the thing. I mean, I, I bring um, a little bit of uh, adventure and unpredictability to the relationship, and she she makes sure all the wheels stay on. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it. It's a it's a pretty good relationship, and of course, all of our work ends up being done together. We've just um, you know merged our businesses together completely, and uh, she does a lot of the graphic design for my products and I do, for my uh, projects, yeah. and um, I do a lot of the writing for her projects. So, yeah, we're um, we're quite a mean machine. But there is a third member of your crew. 
Oh, yeah, Puck. He thinks he runs the place. <laughs> Puck the dog. How long have you had him for? Uh, well, I've had him about 12 years now. He's getting old, although you wouldn't know by, by looking at him. He's, um, he's pretty well known because he's appeared in Waterways World um, a dozen or so times, and he's in the book. But he's also pretty infamous up in the um, Bingley Five Rise area where we were moored for a very long time. I've, I've got him. Um, he was feral. I was um, hanging around in um, in Cheddar um, for a while, and um, the stables where I was hanging around had um, a, a farm on one side and the hunt was on the other. And this little white dog kept turning up and biting people and starting fights with the other dogs and nicking food and crapping all over the place. And he was horrible. He was just horrible, completely feral. <laughs> right. But I took it upon myself to um, you know, feed him, so eventually that made him mine. So I was like, right, kid, okay, I've worked with um, venomous animals all my life. You're getting trained. So I did my best to train him, and I've got him just about at the point where, you know, he, he pretty much he some sometimes does what he's told, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm yeah. sure for a long time in Bingley, I was, they used to say, oh, you know, that you know him, that guy, the guy who's always shouting at his little white dog. That was pretty <laughs> much... <laughs> He was horrible. He's done so many horrible things, but he's really characterful. He's really, you know, he's very, very friendly. Um, but quite often, he, I'll tell him to do something. He'll just give me the big furry finger and do what he likes. How does he find life on the boat? Yeah, he's fine. He spends his time running up and down the boat roof when we're traveling. Um, he enjoys that. The only unfortunate thing about that mm. is that every, as a male dog, every half a mile, he thinks he's in a new territory. And so he's like, oh, like new, new territory, I'll piss on the chimney. And then we'll go another half a mile. He's like, oh, yeah, look, new territory, piss on the chimney. So that's, uh, that's how that rolls, really. Still, he's very cute. He is. Seemingly, every time I send an article into Waterways World, if I send a photograph of Puck, he always seems to make it into print. It's, um, it's amazing. <laughs> I was going to ask you how you spent lockdown, but you actually documented this in the magazine. Um, you were at a boatyard on uh, Leeds and Liverpool. And they built you a gym. How did that come about? So the guys on the on the boatyard, Gallows Bridge in Shipley, by the way, at um, on the Leeds and Liverpool near Leeds, uh, they were like, right, we've got a load of old chunky Argos weights, um, so you can have those. And we've got a couple of barbells, and we've welded these bits of metal together for you to use for for heavy weights. Um, we've put a bracket on a forklift truck so that you can have a punch bag hung. And um, the boat crane that we use to pull the boats out with, we've, we've put a rope on that so you can do rope climbs. And there's a tyre, massive you know, tractor tyre here that you can flip. And, um, you know, we had uh, sled pushes. And it was basically a little chunky CrossFit gym. And it was fantastic. We used to work out on the, yeah. on the towpath, um, on the offside towpath. And it was absolutely fantastic. And since then, we've um, we've created a little uh, CrossFit gym on our boat. Oh wow! We've got a handful of um, yeah, we've got a handful of dumbbells and a handful of kettlebells. We've got skipping rope. We've got um, gymnastic rings that we can put on trees, um, and we've got two rubber mats that we lay out when there's space on the towpath. Um, and we do a workout on the on the towpath when we when we moor up. That's one of our criteria for. Uh, for mooring spots, can we can we do a workout here? Oh, really? So you, you look at the you look at the surroundings and determine whether you yeah can... we look at the, look at the mooring. Say, can we can we lay a mat out there without being in people's way? <laughs> That's fantastic. 
How was the lockdown for you uh, otherwise? Um, we were very, very lucky. Um, we didn't lose our, any, any part of our business um, until after lockdown was finished. It was, um, it was after lockdown was, was finished. We got rid of the um, two magazines we were producing every month. But during lockdown, we, were, uh, we just carried on working. We had lovely people to um, where we were moored. The lovely people there just looked after us. You know, we, we got to the point where we had to stop voicing the things that we wanted to achieve if we weren't absolutely committed to them doing it for us. They, you know, they they were really ace. They uh, they looked after us a lot, and the fitness thing mm. um, really really helped. I don't think I would have handled being stuck in one place for over a year. Um, if it wasn't for the ability to work out at the intensity that we that we like, um, you know, Shipley was Shipley was great for us. We're um, we only moved on when lockdown finished, so sort of April time. Um, we left there, but we're still in touch with the guys there as well. So, oh, that's lovely. And you're on the move now. Yeah, we're on the Gloucester and Sharpness. I'm speaking to you from um, just north of Sharpness. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a big, wide shipping canal. So boats go past here at quite a bit of a lick. Um, and I'm getting some serious boat envy because the um, the seaworthy boats and the trawlers and the Dutch barges and the <laughs> massive boats that are going past us, they're just fantastic. It's quite quiet though, isn't it, the Gloucester and Charlton It is. There's, there's not lots of traffic. Um, and in, even in terms yeah. of kind of industry and, um, and, and, and towns and villages, there's, there's not a lot. You know, we were... I was sat here before we started recording thinking about background noise and I was like, oh, those, that bird sound and the occasional boat going past will be quite a nice accompaniment to the, to the podcast. Yes, definitely. What's happening with the book publishing? Um, do you have anything in the pipeline? Yeah, I got an email from, um, from Bloomsbury a few days ago um, asking me if I wanted to write the second edition of the Narrowboat Guide. So the Liverpool Guide came out, oh, was it 2000? 16 something like that no it must be 2000 must be earlier than that 2000 and i can't remember but i've done the second edition of that book so um so now they're talking about doing the second edition of the narrowboat guide so that's in the pipeline um but also i've just pitched to them uh the idea of doing a book that's more based on the stories from the canal because you know there's been a lot of stories in the 17 years I've been on the boat, um, you know, mm. near death experiences, heartwarming human interest stories and um, kind of philosophical awakenings. And it's been there's a lot of stories to tell. And I think it'd be um, nice to get those stories out there. And also it'd be for a broader audience rather than just specifically boaters who want to live aboard or people interested in narrow boating. I think a lot more people will be interested in it. So that's um, hopefully in the pipeline. All sounds very exciting. Tony, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you. You're very welcome. It's been uh, nice to tell stories. It's, um, it's, uh, it was nice to get an invitation to just gob off for an hour about boats, my favourite subject. <laughs> well, you're very good at it. So uh, oh, thanks, God. Tony. I could, go, I could go on, you know. For 45 years, the ABC Leisure Group has been at the forefront of the waterways leisure industry. 
With 15 strategically placed marinas around the UK, it has hundreds of moorings with modern facilities and a range of benefits. ABC also runs a successful and competitive boat brokerage business. See abcboatsales.com, as well as over 200 luxury hire boats and day boats. Visit abcboathire.com. Furthermore, it offers a range of land-based holiday accommodation, including waterside holiday cottages and caravan parks. Visit abcholidaycottages.com.